From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. This week, Republicans hold their first presidential debate. We have the latest on the race for the GOP nomination. And we ask a former federal prosecutor to break down the racketeering indictment against former President Trump. I think there's a certain amount of magical thinking about RICO, about how you charge it and suddenly it makes the case easy. It often makes the case much more complicated. Plus, the new movie Mutt traces a day in the life of a young trans man in New York City. All that and the puzzle. It's Sunday, August 20th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Much of Southern California is under a state of emergency as Hurricane Hillary accelerates from Mexico, where at least one person was killed in high water. Widespread and catastrophic flooding is forecast in the southwestern U.S. Evacuations are underway, including on California's Catalina Island. The LA's Robert Garova reports from there. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department sent out an advisory to leave just as droves of people got off ferries in the city of Avalon. Many people seemed unfazed, though. They sunbathed, swam in the ocean, and dined in the restaurants. Others, like Brianne Boyd, filled orange sandbags in preparation. People are still coming over. Uh, They probably shouldn't be because they could get stuck here. We don't really know what the weather is going to be like. Local business owner John LaFleur held two heavy sandbags of his own. Mother Nature has her own agenda. All you can do is just prep for what might possibly happen. (laughs) The city of Long Beach on the mainland says it will open a temporary shelter to take in residents and visitors evacuating Catalina. For NPR News, I'm Robert Garova in Avalon. In Canada, wildfires have spurred British Columbia to impose travel restrictions in parts. Dan Karpinchuk reports accommodations are being kept open for evacuees, for firefighters, and for emergency crews. The restrictions were announced by Premier David Eby on Saturday afternoon, mainly affecting tourism travel in the British Columbia interior. Eby says the restrictions would ensure that there is accommodation for firefighters, first responders and healthcare workers who need a safe place to stay during what's being called a challenging time. He says there are about 35,000 people under evacuation orders and he urged others to stay off the roads for tourist-related or other non-essential travel. People currently vacationing in those areas are being asked to cut their visits short. Under the state of emergency, the province can access extraordinary powers, which include restricting travel, forcing evacuations, and even commandeering personal property. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Russia's first mission to the moon in nearly half a century has ended in failure, the aircraft apparently crashing into the lunar surface. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, Russia's space agency says it lost connection with the Luna 25 Saturday and now expects the worst. According to a statement released by Roscosmos, Luna 25 had moved into what the space agency called an unpredictable orbit and ceased to exist with a likely collision on the surface of the moon. Luna 25 had been scheduled to land on the moon's south pole Monday, racing against a competing spacecraft from India to be the first country to claim that achievement. Russian authorities had also touted the Luna 25 mission as showcasing the resiliency of Russia's space program despite Western sanctions over the war in Ukraine, comparing it to Soviet space achievements during the height of the Cold War. Roscosmos says it's formed a special commission to investigate the loss of the spacecraft. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Patriots' preseason game with the Green Bay Packers was called off last night after New England's rookie cornerback Isaiah Bolden was seriously hurt in a collision with a teammate. Bolden had to be carted off the field. Both teams agreed to stop the game with 10 and a half minutes left and the Patriots leading 21 to 17. Patriots captain Matthew Slater agrees with the decision to suspend the game. Right now, our primary concern is Isaiah and his well-being and, you know, our, our whole team's praying for him and um, just hoping that, you know, things aren't as serious as they seem. Patriots players say they were thinking about Buffalo Bills player Jamar Hamlin. Last season, Hamlin went into cardiac arrest and was resuscitated on the field after making a tackle. He has recovered and is playing again. Nearly 3,000 primary care and behavioral health providers will be getting help from the state to repay their student loans. Tomorrow, the Healy administration will announce $141 million in awards as part of the state's student loan repayment program. The people getting the help include nurses, doctors, mental health counselors, and substance recovery coaches. Recipients agree to work two years in an underserved community in Massachusetts. The 51st running of the Falmouth Road Race gets underway this hour. Scott Gelfie is president of the race. He says the race begins with the wheelchair competitors, followed by the elite women and then the elite men. And then the rest of the field will start in a wave of pulses every minute or so uh, soon after that. The seven-mile route along the shore starts at Woods Hole and ends in Falmouth Heights. In New York this afternoon, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the Yankees. It is 68 degrees in Boston, sunny skies today with highs in the mid-80s. Lows in the mid-60s overnight, a partly sunny Monday, and temperatures again in the mid-80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tuesday should be mostly sunny with highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us. This coming week will be a big one for Republican politics. The first debate among the party's presidential among the party's presidential candidates takes place on Wednesday. And also former President Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case must report to a jail to be booked. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler's been following these developments and joins us now. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. First, I hear you've been spending this weekend listening to Republican candidates speak at a conference there in Atlanta hosted by conservative radio host Eric Erickson. Um, What's that been like? Yeah, so it's called The Gathering, and it saw six Republican presidential candidates speak over the course of two days. Donald Trump was not one of them. He wasn't invited. The theme was Forward Which Way, which is appropriate as the party and the country finds themselves at a political crossroads. So for 48 hours in a hotel ballroom in Atlanta, 
a group of conservatives contemplated that question in a sort of alternate reality where Trump wasn't running for president and wasn't running away with the primary polling. Now, Erickson said at the beginning he wasn't going to ask the candidates about last week's racketeering indictments of Trump and 18 others because he knew what people would say and because he didn't want it to be another place for candidates to give rehearsed stump speeches. There were actually 45-minute conversations with these candidates that actually saw a lot of important information about where they stand on everything from the border to education to foreign policy in China. Okay, so you you said that the host, Eric Erickson, said he wasn't going to ask them about the indictments because he knew what they were going to say. What were they going to say? Well, to be fair, Aisha, these are the fourth indictments in as many months, so there is certainly a level of felony fatigue. And in the Republican Party by this point, there aren't that many people that don't already have solid thoughts about the former president and his legal issues. Case in point, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis only indirectly mentioned Trump's focus on the 2020 election in the middle of a lot of discussion about DeSantis's vision for the presidency, arguing Republicans should be talking more about 2024 and contrast with President Joe Biden. There's nobody that wants us to be looking backwards more than the Democrats and the media. They would love to have us have to relitigate all this stuff from 2020, 2021, uh, because what does that do? That lets Biden sit in his basement again, not have to answer questions or face scrutiny. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was the only one to tackle indictments head on. Speaking to reporters after his speech, he says he used to support Trump, but Trump betrayed his supporters in the country on January 6th and calls him morally responsible for the attack on the Capitol. So whether you believe in the criminal prosecutions or you don't, two things. One, they're real and there's something politically we're going to have to deal with. And two, his conduct is reprehensible. It doesn't matter whether it's criminal or not. Now, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was also in high demand at the conference as someone who spoke out against Trump and didn't suffer electorally. He keeps being floated as a potential presidential candidate despite saying he's not running. Kemp pulled out a pencil during his speech for a metaphor about controlling the government, basically saying Republicans needed to stop trying to rewrite the past so they can regain power and erase what Democrats in Washington are doing now. So so now on Wednesday, some of these same people are coming together again for the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee, except Trump might not be there, right? What's up with that? Well, there's potential layers to this going on, with Trump potentially skipping the debate and instead doing an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. I mean, recent polling shows Trump with a commanding lead against literally everyone. So on the one hand, anyone not named Trump that'll be on the debate stage Wednesday could use this chance to break through to voters without necessarily going against him. But on the other hand, Aisha, a primary debate without the runaway frontrunner might not be a big draw. You know, in the 30 seconds we have left, Trump and those 18 co-defendants indicted last week in Atlanta will have to turn themselves in sometime next week. How does that work? Yes, the DA gave a deadline of Friday at noon for everyone, including Trump, to surrender to the Fulton County Jail. That gives Trump a lot of leeway to pick and choose the best time for him to get a lot of media impact, like maybe Wednesday to overshadow the debate. But we'll have to see because everybody should be getting booked, including mugshots. Well, we'll bring listeners those details when that happens. Reporter Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Joining us. Thank you. Two decades ago, NPR's Robert Siegel asked G. Robert Blakey about the expanding use of RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Blakey drafted the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. Title IX of the act is known as RICO. At the time, there was a case concerning Tyson Foods and undocumented workers. Is it fair now to apply the same law to a poultry company, however badly it may behave, 
well, given that it's not, it, it isn't a gangster organization. Organized crime was the occasion for the enactment of the statute, but it applies to any person. For example, when Michael Milken was operating Drexel Burnham by a pattern of fraud on Wall Street, the statute applied to him just as it did when Vito Genovese uh, was applying uh, his trade over on Mulberry Street in New York. So it applies to all God's children. Now Fulton County, Georgia, is accusing 19 people of running afoul of that state's RICO statute. Donald Trump is at the top of the list, of course, but another defendant is Rudy Giuliani, who made ample use of RICO as a prosecutor in New York. Joining us now is Ken White, a former federal prosecutor who now works as a criminal defense attorney. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So Georgia's law is based on the federal law. Is there much difference between the two? And I do have to ask you, do you think it's an appropriate application in this case? Georgia's RICO law is broader and more loosely interpreted than the federal RICO law. When you look at federal RICO prosecutions and civil suits, the federal courts impose a ton of complicated requirements and elements. Georgia courts have taken a much more sort of easygoing approach, uh, generalist approach to the burden of proof here. In terms of whether it's right, it's a very powerful tool. And the problem in my mind as a criminal defense attorney with giving the government a super powerful tool to use against the very worst people is pretty soon they start using it against everybody. The idea being like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Exactly. Or if you have some tool that's only supposed to be used against, you know, the five families of New York or something, all of a sudden it's being used for very different people. One of the things that the RICO statute enables, makes easier, is for prosecutors like District Attorney Willis to bring these big, sprawling cases with many defendants. Here in the Trump indictment, we have 19. In the famous uh, school cheating scandal RICO case she brought, there were initially dozens. And in the Young Thug case that she's bringing, there were initially dozens, and there are still about a dozen. Part of the problem of that from a perspective of getting trials done is it makes it incredibly burdensome and difficult to move forward. So that young thug RICO case is in its eighth month of trial and they don't even have a jury yet. In the case of the school cheating scandal that she prosecuted under RICO, the trial was seven months long. Part of this, isn't it, when you throw around a lot of charges for a lot of people, is that you can get some of the people to plead guilty and then maybe testify against other people. Is that part of the reasoning? It's absolutely part of it. I would say out of those 19 defendants in the Trump indictment, maybe two or three of them can afford to defend themselves all the way through trial in a case like this. It's ruinously expensive. And most people, for that matter, can't afford not to work for six to nine months while you're in trial. So there's a huge pressure just to plead guilty. And that makes better stats for the DA, more people flipped to testify against others, and more apparent success. And so Rudy Giuliani is also charged in this, and he famously used the RICO law to go after organized crime, but also to go after white-collar crimes like insider trading when he was a prosecutor in New York. Did he, in a way, lay the groundwork 30 years ago for his own indictment now? 
He did. He put in some of the big initial RICO trials, the famous ones against the mob in New York and then against some high-profile white-collar criminals. And the sort of culture surrounding RICO grew up out of that. Tyson Foods won the case that we referenced in the introduction to this conversation. So what do you make of the Georgia case? Not just the RICO part, but the 41 counts brought here. Do you think it's a strong case? I think there's the core of a strong case in there, a core of some overt criminal acts that can probably be addressed. I think there's a lot of fluff also. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And there are a lot of complicating factors that we haven't yet seen come into play yet, like the ability of Trump or some of the other defendants to remove this case to federal court because it addresses things that happened when they were federal officials. So I think D.A. Willis's hope to get this going in six months is not realistic. Well, Fannie Willis has also leaned on RICO during her time as the Fulton County D.A. So is her track record as good there as Giuliani's was as a federal prosecutor in New York? Well, so far, she's had a lot of success with RICO. Critics say that she's using it against the wrong people. So, for instance, there was a lot of controversy about her use of RICO against teachers and educational administrators in a cheating and educational fraud case. They thought it was disproportionate. There's controversy, but there's no question that she's had success. That's criminal defense attorney Ken White. He's also co-host of the podcast, Serious Trouble. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. In soccer news from Sydney, Australia, Spain has just won its first Women's World Cup title. Today, Spain beat England one to nothing in the final. It's 8.18, and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about a newly discovered species of snake named after the actor Harrison Ford. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Join us this week at City Space to relive cringeworthy teenage experiences. The Mortified podcast takes the stage featuring true and comical stories of adolescent anxiety. That's Friday, August 25th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 68 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. I'm Amy Held. With these headlines, evacuations are underway in parts of Southern California, and residents are being told to finalize preparations for today's expected arrival of a rare tropical storm, forecast to bring what could be catastrophic flooding to the southwest. In Canada, tens of thousands of people are under evacuation orders because of wind-whipped wildfires. And shelter needs are dire in British Columbia. Travel restrictions are in place there to reserve accommodations for evacuees and emergency personnel. 
In a first, Spain is the reigning world champion in women's soccer. They beat England in the World Cup final in Sydney, Australia, with a score of 1-0. The single goal scored in the first half of the historic game. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Voters in the Central American country of Guatemala are at the polls today to elect a new president. It's an election that has already been full of legal and political drama, but it's also one that's being seen as a huge test for a fragile democracy. NPR's Ada Peralta joins us from Guatemala City. Good morning, Ada. Hey, good morning, Aisha. So let's start with the big question. Why are the stakes so high for this election? I think you have to look at the big picture. Um, Just a few years ago, Guatemala was a country that was making strides with its democracy. It was fighting corruption with the help of a UN-backed task force. And at one point, popular protests even forced a sitting president out of office over charges of corruption. And then the last few years, the establishment struck back. They threw the corruption task force out of the country. They started arresting journalists and harassing judges and prosecutors. And the first round of these uh, these elections were held under those same pressures. Uh, Some popular candidates were kicked out of the ballot for very flimsy reasons. And then the first round ended in a huge surprise. A reformist candidate took second place. And now analysts say that this election could actually be a chance to stop Guatemala's democratic backslide. And, And why is that? Like, why could this election mean change? I was talking yesterday with Edgar Ortiz Romero, and he's a constitutional law expert and a political risk analyst. And he used a a movie metaphor. He said that what happened here in Guatemala is, quote, a glitch in the matrix. Uh, And what he means by that is that the ruling class here was using corrupt institutions to get rid of their competitors. But they didn't go after the underdog. And this underdog miraculously came in second place. So now you have Bernardo Arevalo, uh, the underdog, an anti-corruption candidate who has promised to restore institutions. And he's facing off against Sandra Torres, a former first lady who was once jailed on corruption charges and who is backed by the ruling class here. Arevalo is leading in the polls by a huge margin. And Edgar Ortiz Romero believes this uh, presents a great chance to short circuit the power grab that the ruling class has been orchestrating here for years. Uh, But Romero says, watch out. Let's listen. Our democracy was saved by the incompetence of the bad guys and not because of the virtue of the good ones. So he says the ruling class here has not yet given up on trying to get their way or they haven't yet given up on trying to fix that glitch in the matrix, so to speak. You've been in you've been in Guatemala. What have you been hearing? 
I have heard cautious optimism. Most uh, of the people I spoke to say they are going to vote for Bernardo Arevalo because they think he's new to the political game and so he's less likely to be corrupt. Um, I spoke to Areceli Castro at a vegetable market here in Guatemala City and she's backing Arevalo, but let's listen to what she told me when I asked her if she thought Guatemala could change if Arevalo wins. Sí, va a cambiar, pero no drásticamente no. Es muy imposible a como estamos. So she's saying, yes, things will change, but not drastically. That's impossible right now, she says, but I believe that at least the country won't sink any lower. So she's setting a very low bar, but yet it's a glimmer of hope. In, in the 30 seconds we have left, people are voting right now. When will results, results come in and what are you expecting? So results, we should get them around 10 p.m. So by tomorrow, we should have a clear idea of who the winner will be. But this is going to be a long process because Sandra Torres, who is way behind in the polls, uh, has alleged rigging without any proof. Uh, but her team has already hinted that they're preparing for a big legal battle. That's NPR's Ader Peralta in Guatemala City. Ader, thank you. Thank you, Aisha. Schools in West Maui were just beginning to open for the new academic year when the fires hit on August 8th, nearly two weeks ago. Since then, the whole school year has been thrown into uncertainty for West Maui parents as they grapple with making new plans, many in the aftermath of losing their homes. NPR's Vanessa Romo joins us now from Maui. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Aisha. We've seen so much destruction in the photos of West Maui. Were the schools also damaged? Definitely. The fire in Lahaina damaged or destroyed more than 2,200 structures, and schools were a part of that devastation. One elementary school was totally ravaged by the fire, and other schools that are still standing suffered wind damage, according to the Department of Education. And Hawaii's public school superintendent issued a statement earlier this week explaining that crews at those campuses would be cleaning up debris and testing the air and water quality. And as of Thursday, officials still had not set a reopening date for those schools. Meanwhile, Maui County says that over 3,000 students have been displaced. So what are education officials doing to get the kids who've been displaced back into the classroom? They are still working to sort that out. Since the fire, the Department of Education has been encouraging parents who feel comfortable to enroll their kids in other schools. So far, about 400 students have signed up to do just that. But the challenge there is that many parents want to keep their kids physically near. And Maui isn't tiny. It's almost 50 miles long. And West Maui is separated from the rest of the island by a big mountain range that you have to drive around. I spoke with one parent, Rochelle Kitajima. She has four school-aged children from first grade to 11th. They didn't lose their home, but they would have to travel across the island to go to school. It's a 45-minute drive, 26 miles each way. And I am an ER nurse, so I start work at 7 p.m. I get off at 7.30. It's just not feasible for my family. That sounds incredibly difficult. Uh, is there transportation set up for kids who are expected to travel to these new schools? That is something that Kitajima mentioned as well. At the moment, she says there's no bus system to shuttle kids to and from those campuses. The other thing is that a lot of people here have no idea where they're going to end up long term. So they don't feel it makes sense for them or their kids to enroll in a new school only to move again in the near future. So are there alternatives? Yes. Parents have the option of enrolling their children in the district's distance learning program. So far, the Department of Education says that more than 200 students have signed up for that. 
But that has its own challenges. I met Leimami Keita at a distribution hub in West Maui. She was picking up school supplies for her three school-aged children when we met. I asked if she'd be open to distance learning. We did that during COVID. It was online, but we don't have the, the computers. We lost all of that in the fire. So we're just doing whatever we find here in the hubs. I mean, school provides not just education for the kids, but it can provide a much-needed break and relief for parents. So how are they coping without it? Well, there are a number of organizations that have set up day camps for kids. Some of them have accredited therapists and mental health professionals who are providing free counseling to kids. But they're all aimed at providing a place for kids to play games and make art and just be together to socialize with other kids. They're also designed to give parents or caregivers some alone time. I spoke with a woman named Jackie Englert. She was actually picking up her friend's four boys from one of these day camps. She just needed space. Everything feels really chaotic right now. I don't even, I'm just doing what I can, helping. She was overwhelmed, emotional. There's no space to be emotional when you have four boys in your face. And Englert said that their mom, who's lost everything, just needed some time to process and grieve. NPR's Vanessa Romo. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you. A look now behind the statistics on homicides in America. As we've reported, early data from hundreds of cities suggest the overall murder rate in the U.S. may be falling after a surge, both in cities and rural areas, that started in 2020. Here are a few lines from a new ProPublica piece. Criminologists point to a confluence of factors, including the social disruptions caused by COVID-19, the rise in gun sales early in the pandemic, in the uproar following the murder of George Floyd, which, in many cities, led to diminished police activity and further erosion of trust in the police. But in my reporting on the surge, I kept hearing about another accelerant, social media. That's Alec McGillis. He noticed that one of the drivers of the spike in homicides, and one that shows no sign of decreasing even as the overall rate seems to fall, is violence in cities among young people. It's really bad. It's just incredibly striking. The number that jumped out most to me was that there's been a 91% increase between 2014 and 2021, 91% increase in homicides among 15 to 19-year-olds. Just Mm. a, a, a stunning rise that far outpaces the overall rise in homicides over that period. And so authorities like local police departments, they are seeing ties between social media and these killings? So I've been reporting on this terrible rise in gun violence over the past couple of years. And in addition to the factors that I laid out in the piece that could explain this increase, what I kept hearing from not just police, but also violence prevention workers was that social media was presenting an entirely new challenge. Essentially that you have instigation happening on social media that has far more force than what used to happen just sort of on the on the street, on the corner, in the school classroom, the school hallway, mouth to mouth. That right now you have the ability of instigation online to be so much more visible so that the person being targeted by a given post feels much more pressure to respond. You point out in your piece that that smartphones and social media existed, you know, well before 2020's rise in murder rates. What exactly changed three years ago? 
the pandemic with the isolation that it caused, all the, the closures of schools and rec centers and all, all these other civic institutions, of course, left people much more attached to their phones for communication distraction. And so it's really not hard to see how this toxic effect of social media in fueling conflict would have grown. Can you talk to me about what you mean by instigation on social media? Is it just calling out an individual saying, oh, when I see you, it's up. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about? Exactly. It takes many different forms. Instagram posts, Instagram live videos or Facebook live videos where you're actually streaming from someone else's turf and sort of taunting them and saying, here I am on your side of town, come and get me. And then comes the threat from the other side. Well, where are you? Drop your pin if you've got the guts to you know, actually show where you are and then you drop your pin and then they come get you. If there are these clear threats of personal violence, why aren't social media companies doing more here or setting standards where you can't say these things or like shutting down some of this? I reached out to all the companies and I was I was really quite struck at the, I don't know if indifference might be too strong a word. There's so much focus these days on on how to screen social media for rhetoric of political violence, but there seems to be much less attention given to what we do about this much more routine conflict that flows between young people in our cities. And then, of course, there's also the, simply the practical challenge of with a much more routine kind of stuff that flows back and forth, how, how does one even start to screen some of this stuff? But really, in general, it just struck me that the companies had not really focused on this more and were perhaps not even aware of how much their own products were playing a role in fueling a lot of this conflict and violence. Are there any solutions to this that look promising um, for the social media companies or for, you know, any other parties that may be able to intervene? So there are researchers in the violence prevention field who've been worrying about this for quite a while. And uh, one of them, by the name of Desmond Patton, worked with some colleagues over the last few years to come up with algorithms that were designed to basically screen Twitter posts for posts that signaled possible violence to the poster themselves, you know, self-harm or aggression towards others. And they were pretty successful in, in coming up with algorithms that were good at finding those kind of posts. But they have not, in fact, actually deployed this with violence prevention groups because they were worried about the ethical aspect of it, that there was somehow resembled too much surveillance efforts by police, by law enforcement. But it's really tough. I mean, it's everywhere. It's pervasive in our lives. And so how to tamp down on it and filter it out is extraordinarily difficult. That's Alec McGillis. His piece called How Social Media Apps Could Be Fueling Homicides Among Young Americans is available from ProPublica and The Atlantic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Why does the floor move? Give me your torch. Indiana Jones famously can't stand snakes. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, after his crew opens up the Well of Souls, he looks down into it and he sees it's crawling with... Snakes. 
Why did it have to be snakes? But the actor who played the role, Harrison Ford, has just had a newly discovered species named after him. The slender brown and yellow snake was found in Peru's Andes Mountains by a team of American and Peruvian researchers. The lead scientist was Edgar Lair, a professor of biology at Illinois Wesleyan University, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, okay, can you start by giving us the full name of this newly discovered snake? It's a little tricky to pronounce, and I'm known for butchering my pronunciations. I totally agree. Uh, scientific <laughs> names can be challenging. It's Tachymenoides Harrison Fordi. Okay, Tachymenoides Noides, Harrison Fordi. Harrison Fordi. Correct. And so, can you describe the snake to us? Like, is there anything special about it? Yeah, uh, the coloration that you have mentioned is kind of a yellowish brown and it has beautiful copper eyes. It's a pretty snake, which is also very well camouflaged, uh, hiding in grass. And this snake was discovered in a really remote part of Peru. How was the snake even spotted? The Otishi National Park was on my list for many years because it's so remotely located you have to fly in with a helicopter. And then we had all like equipment for camping for about three weeks. And then we explored the area. We had to see what kind of amphibians, frogs, toads, and reptiles, lizards, and snakes we can find. Was it hard to find the snake? Because you said it's really good at hiding. Exactly. So it was simply a lucky moment that we were running into it in the morning. It was sun basking in a swamp uh, and was lying there, and a colleague who spotted it first quickly grabbed it. Often it's luck. You have to be at the right moment at the right time. And Harrison Ford already has a new species of spider and an ant named after him. So why now a snake? Uh, I'm a big fan of the Indiana Jones uh, movies. And when I was working on the species description, I think I got influenced by one of the trailers of the Dial of Destiny. And I was wondering, wait a minute, wouldn't it be great? Indiana Jones, who hates snakes, and then you have Harrison Ford, who loves snakes, who's an advocate for conservation, to kind of name it after Harrison Ford. And this was when the idea was born. As a biologist, how worried are you about the loss of biodiversity and the impact of that loss? I'm not very optimistic. We as humans are part of biodiversity. And if the surroundings are suffering, let's say frogs are disappearing, fewer insects, fewer pollinators, it goes back to us. So we are risking uh, our own survival when we do not care about the health of the nature. That's Edgar Lair, a biology professor from Illinois Wesleyan University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The big news in soccer is just in from Sydney, Australia. Spain has emerged victorious. A few minutes ago, Spain won its first Women's World Cup, defeating England one to nothing. The New England Patriots have just provided an encouraging update on injured player Isaiah Bolden. The team says Bolden has been released from a hospital in Green Bay and will travel with the team today back to Foxborough. The Pats' rookie cornerback had to be carted off the field in the fourth quarter of last night's preseason game against the Packers, and the game was called off. The 51st running of the Felmouth Road Race is getting underway. The wheelchair competitors begin the event, followed by the elite women, the elite men, and then the rest of the field. The seven-mile route along the shoreline starts at Woods Hole and ends in Falmouth Heights. This afternoon in New York, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the Yankees. It is 68 degrees in Boston, sunny skies today and highs in the mid-80s. Overnight lows in the mid-60s. You can expect a mostly cloudy Monday, temperatures again in the mid-80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms, and Tuesday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com Genesis Awusu has won practically every music award in Australia. The name might not be familiar here, but his new album, Struggler, could change that. It's an album that was definitely framed by the last few years of this chaotic and absurd world that we've all lived in. That's Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBY. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for a Subaru loves learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Dan Pitt of Palo Alto, California. I said, name a famous contemporary singer, six letters in the first name, four letters in the last, the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, and ninth letters in order, spell a repeated part of a song that everyone knows. What is it? Well, the singer is Celine Dion, and those letters spell E-I-E-I-O, which is the refrain from Old MacDonald's Had a Farm. Oh, my goodness. I was not, th- I was thinking chorus. <laughs> like, because like, a chorus is repeating a song. I was, I was totally off. So, okay. But everybody else seemed to have gotten what this was supposed to be because we got over 1,500 correct entries. And Nancy Wooten of San Diego, California is our puzzle winner this week. Congratulations, Nancy. Thank you. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, I'm pretty sure that I sent at least one postcard in. 
but uh, we really play more uh, since it's been online. We, we tend to listen on the app and uh, makes it a little easier. Okay. And, and you told us that your husband actually got this, but you're playing and representing the couple. Yes, I am. So are you ready to play the puzzle? Oh, I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> Take it away, Will. All right, Nancy and Aisha, this is a good two-person puzzle, so uh, I hope you'll both jump in here. I'm going to name some things that are in categories, like days of the week or U.S. states. Each one I name is next to last alphabetically in its category. You name the one that's last. For example, if I said Tuesday, you would say Wednesday, because Tuesday and Wednesday are alphabetically the last two days of the week. Okay. All right, number one is Wisconsin. Um, Virginia? Well, V is before W, so... I'm going the wrong way. Uh, w. Is it, it's, another, it's another W state, so... It's another state that starts with W so, after Wisconsin. Oh, Wyoming? Wyoming, you got it. There we go. October. November. November, well, N is before O, so... That's not it. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm still going backwards. Uh, We're missing something. July, September? August, September, you got it. It's S. September? September, you got it. <laughs> Try this one. Two. T-W-O. With zero? Zero. Good job, Aisha. Zero. Oh. It's the only digit before, after two. <laughs> Thanks. Uranus. U-R-A-N-U-S. Okay, so this is planets. Yeah. Venus. Venus, you got it. Taurus, T-A-U-R-U-S. Um, Who knows their zodiac? I'm trying to think. So there's Taurus. Oh, 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 like Virgo? Virgo, Virgo? yeah. We're just entering Virgo. (laughs) Thank you. Virgo's groove, Beyonce. Okay, I got it. (laughs) White Sox. White Sox. Oh, my goodness. Do you watch baseball? I do. Okay, well, this is one of the big teams. Yankees? Yankees, you got it. Princeton. Oh, God. Um, okay, Princeton. Okay, another one. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's complicated what's considered an uh, 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 Ivy League. Um, Yale? Yale. Is it like Yale? Yale, okay, you oh, got it, you Nancy. Got it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and here's your last one, Zambia. This is African countries? Or any countries, but they do. The answer is in Africa. There's exactly two United Nations members whose names start with Z. Zambia is one. And the other is Zimbabwe. Good job, Nancy. And Aisha. Nice one. That was a tough one. It was. N- Nancy, that was a tough one. They he look, he he brought the heat today. I never know. know what you're gonna get. I, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but you did a great job. How do you feel? Oh, I'm I'm glad to have uh, gotten through that. <laughs> Thank you, Aisha. <laughs> and Will. You did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Nancy, what member station do you listen to? 
We're sustaining members of KPBS San Diego. Oh, yes. We love to hear that. That's Nancy Wooten of San Diego, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you both. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Paula Egan Wright of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Name part of the human body above the neck in nine letters. Rearrange them to name another part of the human body found below the neck. Now, only some people have the first body part. Everyone has the second one. What parts of the human body are these? So again, part of the human body above the neck, nine letters. Anagram it to name another part of the human body found below the neck. Only some people have the first body part. Everyone has the second one. What parts of the human body are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, August 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Anyone with an electric vehicle knows charging at home is easy, but on the go, charging is hard. Ford Motor Company CEO Jim Farley recognized this and worked out a deal with Tesla to use its charging stations. That change is coming soon. In the meantime, how easy was it for him to drive a Ford EV pickup long distance from Northern California to Las Vegas? Find out tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can tune in on the radio, your phone, or a smart speaker. What happens when your past and present collide? In the new film, Mutt, Finya, a young trans man, finds out. Over a single 24-hour period in New York, Finya grapples with family, lost love, and staying true to himself. To tell us more about the film, we are joined by the film's writer and director, Vuk Lungalov-Klotz, and by actor Leo Mill, who plays Finya. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Hey, it's so exciting to be here. <laughs> <laughs> to start off with you, Vuk, when did you know you wanted to tell this story and, and to tell it in this way? Before I answer that question, I just want to say what an honor it is to be here. Um, what got me to telling the story. Well, I'm a transgender man myself, but I think um, I was, I had a weird upbringing. I was kind of, I traveled a lot and I had two parents from different countries. I met in New York. I grew up in Chile. I left my country and I left a little sister behind there. And I feel like I, this movie started as a love letter to her and kind of robbing her of a role model, especially a trans role model. I feel like sometimes as queer people, we feel like we don't have much to give if it's not to other queer people. And I think that's, that's not true. So I started writing her love letter, kind of wondering what it would be like if we actually did meet. Like, would she, you know, take me for who I am, etc. And it just kind of grew. I really wanted to show a trans man being an anti-hero and just being a person. I feel like to just see a guy who's confused sometimes and really just trying to get back with his ex that is a trans person, especially a mixed trans person. I wanted to talk about the diaspora of having an international family. All these themes are, are in the movie. So many films about queer people like often depict really traumatic experiences and, and Finya faces many challenges, but they're 
not super violent or anything like that. Like there, there are things that trans people can face every day, like misgendering. Um, we have a, a clip of when Finya goes to the bank to cash a check, but the teller tells them it's got the wrong name on it. I'm a transgender person. I'm, I'm a trans guy. My boss just forgets to put my legal name on my check. It's, it's so similar. Can you please just help me out? Like I said, ma'am, you have to get a new check. Ma'am? There's nothing I can do. Do I look like a ma'am to you? I, I just explained that I'm trans. Please, can you step to the side? I have to help the other guest. So, Leo, being a trans person yourself, like, what was it like acting out those scenes and living out those moments? I mean, I think that there are a lot of similarities between Fenya and I, you know, my experience, just because we both share an identity of being a masculine of center trans person. But ultimately, Fenya is a character. It's not me. It's not Vuk. It's this person that Vuk created and wrote on the page for us to bring to life together. And, you know, acting those scenes was such a privilege because oftentimes as a trans actor, you are delegated to playing the character who is the queer best friend, who's just meant to be the butt of the joke, or you're just really good at technology. And you don't necessarily get the opportunity to express the full scope of the human experience. And that kind of public experience of not being received for who you are, unfortunately, is often an everyday occurrence for trans people. And so that's like a mundane kind of really grounded in reality moment. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was such a privilege and it was so fun. And in a way it was so easy because of that. A lot of people that Finya runs into during this day um, are people he hasn't seen since before he transitioned. And it seems like part of the the dynamic of the movie is like he's trying to tell, you know, the people that he's run into is like, I have changed, but I'm still the same. Is that what you felt from that character? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, obviously Mutt is a portrayal of one trans person's experience and transness is not a monolith. So, you know, Vuk and I were able to collaborate really closely and share our personal perspectives on things to kind of put those two things together into this one person's story because Fenya is not just a trans person. Like, he's a person. And I think in each of the three main relationships of the film, Vuk, as both a storyteller on screen and then on the page, was able to capture the way that Fenya was trying to stumble into becoming the fullness of a brother and the fullness of a child slash son, you know? And, like, not just, I'm a trans person who has a parent and, like, do they get me because I'm trans? It's like, no, Dad, you were gone when I was growing up and I miss you. Like, do you see that? So yes, he, Fenya is trying to be seen for so much more than just his gender identity. Yeah. If I can add a little bit to that. Oh, I yes, think, absolutely. I think the idea of loss in translation and unrequited love, those two concepts, I think, appear and reappear in transness a lot. And almost unrequited love from yourself to others too, because when you feel invisible, you almost cannot engage in conversations fully. You cannot see other people fully. And I think something I really realized when I came out over like 10 years ago was how mean and aggressive I was because I was walking around earth feeling invisible and feeling like already when I would walk into a conversation, I was misrepresented by myself. So why even try? What, what do you feel like, it, thinking about the character, what would the character want the world to know about him? 
That's a great question. I feel like Fenya wants people to wake up. He's just like, can you just deal with it yesterday so that we can keep it moving? You know what I mean? Like, he's like, let's go. Just look, Fenya, Fernanda, this, the names are not that much different. Can you please just cash the check? Like, it's not your money. There's an intensity and an aggression that comes from his life experience that I think would maybe make him want to say to the world, like, wake up. Like, it's time. It was time yesterday. And I don't give a anymore. Mm. What are your thoughts on this film coming out at a time when trans rights are under attack in the U.S. and what it means for trans representation at this point? And we can start with you, Leah. I think that Mutt is a really important film to be coming out right now, and it doesn't feel like a coincidence. Um, And so I think that having one of the first films in which a trans character written and directed by a fellow trans person is depicted on screen where the primary motivation of that character is not to come out, and instead they're depicted as someone who is an imperfect human being who's trying to get through a quintessential terrible day in New York City, which always involves getting locked out of your apartment, always involves going to the airport, always involves it being way too hot. And what's so amazing is the fact that I have had friends from college whose parents and grandparents live in the Midwest, in the middle of the country, who have never met a trans person before, who got to see it through a streaming service platform during a festival run, and they finish the movie saying, oh my gosh, I love that Fenya. I feel like I have a trans friend. And then all of a sudden, the issues that have felt so distant suddenly become humanized and suddenly become relevant. And Vuk, what about you? I've been out for about 10 years of my life and I I think I'm most nervous and afraid now. So I think... I'm adding to the fight the way that I can, which is through empathy. I know it's not the strongest sword, but it is the sword that has chosen me for this fight. And like Leo said, when you watch this movie, you feel like you have a trans friend at the end. And I've had so many people come and say that to me. I hope to change some hearts and also just like make kids and and people like myself feel less alone. Vuk Longaluf Klotz and Leo Mill are the director and lead actor in the new film Mutt in select theaters now. Thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This is great. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. Thanks for spending time this Sunday morning with us at 90.9 WBUR. 
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Listening to WBUR is a great way to follow the news. Another great option? Checking your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 68 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today has in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. On this week's Wait, Wait, Cindy Lauper tells us about a mild disagreement she once had with a friend. I turned over the table and I pulled on his beard and hit him with my purse over the head. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. We promise no harm will come to you from this week's news quiz. Also with Brian May from Queen, dancer Misty Copeland and the geniuses behind Southside. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Southern California is bracing for potential flooding and landslides as Hurricane Hillary approaches, an almost unprecedented storm for the region. And New York's Rikers Island Jail Complex is set to close in 2027, but activists are calling for a federal judge to address the violence there right now. Plus, researchers were able to reconstruct Pink Floyd music from the brainwaves of people who listened to the band. We basically read the piano keys of the brain. It's Sunday, August 20th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Hurricane Hillary is churning now near the west coast of Mexico's Baja, California Peninsula, bringing what is likely life-threatening flooding. At least one person so far has been killed, his vehicle swept away in high waters. Forecasters say the storm is due to reach Southern California this afternoon, causing what is expected to be catastrophic flooding in parts of the southwest. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Christopher Alam reports thousands of federal, state, and local workers are mobilizing under a state of emergency for Southern California. Southern California is anticipating 4 to 10 inches of rain by Monday. That's almost a year's worth in some areas. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services says that roadways will be closed preemptively and evacuation orders may be issued to residents. Office of Emergency Services Director Nancy Ward says they are expecting power outages in the region. Make no mistake, there will be power outages across Southern California, and we want to be sure that we have this close communication with those utility companies to ensure that they can restore power as quickly as they possibly can. California Governor Gavin Newsom says the state is ready with water rescue teams, flood fighting equipment, and the National Guard. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Adam in San Francisco. 
Security is tight in Ecuador as voters head to the polls in snap presidential elections. They will choose from eight candidates after a campaign marred by violence, including the assassination of one candidate who was outspoken about the growing violence linked to drug cartels in the country. The BBC's Katie Watson has this report. The murder of Fernando Villavicencio upended the final week of campaigning. All the remaining candidates have been promising peace and security because that's what every Ecuadorian wants to be reassured about. Ecuador was once one of the calmest South American countries, but these past few years there's been a huge surge in violence as powerful drugs cartels have taken advantage of a country hit hard by the COVID pandemic and by corrupt politics. Indeed, since the murder, another politician's been killed and several shootouts close to where candidates have been campaigning have also been reported. Ecuadorians are heading to the polls, scared of the consequences. The BBC's Katie Watson reporting. Spain has won the FIFA Women's World Cup, beating England 1-0 in a tightly fought match. Robbie Griffiths reports from London the championship is a first for Spain. Spain's captain Olga Carmona scored with her left foot in the first half to give her team the victory. Spain later had a penalty saved by England's goalkeeper in the second half. Both teams hit the frame of the goal in a close match, but in the end, Spain prevailed after 13 minutes of extra time. The soccer match was held at Stadium Australia in Sydney. USA won the last two Women's World Cups, but went out to Sweden in the round of 16 this time. Robbie Griffiths, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. New England Patriots cornerback Isaiah Bolden is well enough to travel with his team back to Foxborough today. The rookie had to be carted off of Lambeau Field in the fourth quarter of last night's preseason game against the Packers after he collided with a teammate. Bolden was rushed to the hospital and the rest of the game was canceled. The team says Bolden has been released from the Aurora Bay Medical Center in Green Bay after undergoing evaluations and being held overnight for observation. Tomorrow, the Healy administration will announce $141 million in awards as part of the state's student loan repayment program. 3,000 primary care and behavioral health care providers will get a share of the funds to pay off their student loans. In return, they'll work for two years in underserved Massachusetts communities. Cities and towns that do not agree to follow the state's major housing law will be shut out from some state grants. That's part of the Healy administration's new guidelines for the MBTA Communities Act. State Housing Secretary Ed Augustus says the new penalties will encourage municipalities to comply. Given the importance of housing production at this moment in the history of the Commonwealth where we have a housing crisis, we need to make sure we use this tool as effectively and as aggressively as we possibly can so that we can create as much housing uh, to meet these needs. Some communities with access to public transportation say they would not be able to handle the multifamily housing developments that are required. The 51st running of the Falmouth Road Race is underway. As the horn sounded, the wheelchair athletes took off. The rest of the field has been starting in waves. Thousands of competitors will make their way along the seven-mile course from Woods Hole to Falmouth Heights. 3,500 of the participants are raising money for charities. It is 71 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs reaching the mid-80s. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us. We'll start this hour in Southern California, where Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency in anticipation of Hurricane Hillary making landfall. National Guard teams are already positioned across the region. Saul Gonzalez with member station KQED joins us now from San Diego. Welcome to the program, Saul. Hi, Aisha. First, what's going on out there? Like, has the brunt of the storm arrived yet? Well, no, not yet. I just stepped outside and saw a light drizzle falling here near the San Diego waterfront. But the full brunt of the storm, which has now been downgraded to a Category 1 and will be a tropical storm when it comes ashore, is expected to strike Southern California later today with the center reaching where I am in San Diego sometime in the mid to late afternoon. The most recent tracking puts the storm on a northeasterly course, taking it over inland mountain areas and out toward Palm Springs and the Mojave. Uh, We can't emphasize enough just how unusual a weather event this is for California, right? Like this is this is like this doesn't happen. That's right. In technical terms, it's just bizarre. Now, California is no stranger to natural disasters, right? Like earthquakes and wildfires. And we've had other big storms, but not anything that relates to hurricane, at least not in recent times. That's the kind of disasters we usually see on TV as they hit the eastern seaboard or the Gulf Coast. Actually, Hurricane Hillary has prompted the National Weather Service to issue its very first tropical storm warning for the west coast of the U.S. Meteorologists say the last time a storm like this, of this power, hit Southern California was way back in 1939. What kind of conditions is a storm expected to bring? Well, you know, no surprise, lots of wind and lots of rain, right? Although the storm has lost some punch, forecasters say we could still see sustained wind speeds of up to 35 to 45 miles per hour along the coast, but much higher in inland areas. As for rain, several inches are expected to drop across the region today and into tomorrow. The biggest rainfall totals are expected in mountain areas and out in the Mojave. There, meteorologists say we could see more rain in a single day than usually falls all year. And what are Southern Californians doing to prepare for the storm? Well, they're heading to their supermarkets, right, to buy food and water. Uh, Another item that's in big demand are sandbags, but some distribution sites have run out of both bags and sand. That was the case at one sandbag site in the San Diego County community of Encinitas late yesterday. I was there and I met local resident Big Sellers, who drove up with her husband and kids. Well, we were up in Orange County for a family event and we're on our way home and looking for sandbags just to prepare ourselves for the the hurricane. And you came here and no sandbags. No sandbags. So I guess we're going to go home. We've already done our grocery shopping to make sure that we have non-perishable items. You know, got our flashlights and everything ready, but sandbags was last on our list. Now, like so many other Southern Californians, Sellers hopes the preparations she's made will be enough to get her through this historic storm. Uh, What kind of precautions are authorities taking? 
well, so many. Roads have been closed or will be closed in areas that are prone to flooding. Authorities are issuing evacuation warnings for residential areas that might see flash flooding, especially in hillside neighborhoods scarred by recent wildfires. Many schools will be closed for in-person classroom instruction tomorrow. And here in San Diego, even the U.S. Navy is taking action, sending warships that were docked out into the open ocean to ride out the storm there. Okay, so we've been talking to Saul Gonzalez of KQED, who joins us from San Diego. Thank you, Saul, and please stay safe. Thank you. Several recently elected prosecutors around the country have brought a different approach to lowering crime and maintaining order. But some of them are encountering resistance in states where Republicans control the state legislature and governor's seat. Later today on All Things Considered, we'll speak with a state attorney general in Florida who was suspended this month for allegedly failing to, quote, faithfully enforce the laws of that state. Tune in to your member station on a radio, smart speaker, or with your phone. The United Nations is warning that millions are on the verge of famine in Sudan due to the war there. The fighting began in mid-April when forces led by Sudan's de facto president and army chief faced off against the paramilitary rapid support forces. The UN also says that more than 4 million people have fled to neighboring countries like Egypt and Chad. To understand how we got here, we turn to Alex Duvall. He's the executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University and a Sudan scholar. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be with you. I just wish we had something uh, more cheerful to talk about. Can you catch us up on how things have developed since April? And how did things escalate to this point? Well, this war has now been going on for four months and there seems to be no end in sight. And the two main epicenters of war are the capital city, Khartoum, which is being subjected to some harrowing urban warfare. The paramilitaries, the rapid support forces, have occupied most residential neighborhoods in Khartoum, and they are ransacking and terrorizing them. And the regular armed forces are using their superiority in aircraft and artillery to try and bombard these locations. So civilians are caught in this dreadful trap. And then the other epicenter is Darfur. And many listeners will be familiar with the terrible war and massacres, the United States called it genocide, that happened 20 years ago. And we're seeing pretty much exactly the same scenario of mass killing, mass displacement um, happening all over again. And that is terribly tragic. The deputy executive director of UNICEF uh, has said that Sudan is one of the most dangerous places to operate in the world right now. How would you describe the humanitarian crisis? Even before the fighting broke out in April, Sudan was in a humanitarian crisis. There had been a number of different um, wars. There were still two to three million people displaced from that war in Darfur, living in camps fed by the World Food Programme, who'd been living there for 20 years. And the economy was in a terrible nosedive. And millions of ordinary urban people simply couldn't earn enough money from their wages to buy enough food. So it was already in a food crisis. And then you put on top of that the 
devastation caused by this war, the fact that almost all the hospitals in Khartoum are now closed. It's really hard to imagine quite not only the scale of the crisis, but the complexity, the different layers of collapse of society, of food systems, of medical supplies, and so on. What can aid groups and international groups that want to help, what can they do to get help to people? There are three things that I think we need to think about. One is the the conventional aid response, which is getting food convoys, getting medical teams in, etc., which is incredibly dangerous because neither of the warring parties is interested in, in that happening. The second is that the Sudanese themselves are actually very well organized in trying to help themselves. There were local neighborhood committees called resistance committees that were organized a few years ago to resist the dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir. And they have been repurposed as frontline responders. But then the big question is, why is this not on the political agenda? Why is this not at the UN Security Council? Why is the UN Secretary General just making a few bland statements? So there doesn't seem to be the political pressure necessary to generate a humanitarian response to pressure the parties or indeed to start negotiations for peace. Do you know why you think that is? Why this hasn't gotten attention? Obviously, all eyes have been on Niger because of the coup in that country. Is the West distracted by that and other international crises like what's happening in Ukraine? I think the number one is that we've all been distracted by Ukraine and haven't had time for any African crises, really. Um, the, the, the war in Ethiopia was just as devastating, didn't get really any serious policy attention. And I think Sudan is the same. But what I fear is that these crises are now getting so big They're generating so many refugees, generating the complete failure, the collapse of states, which is what we're seeing in Sudan, we may see in in Niger and elsewhere, that um, the United States, the UN, others are really going to have to up their game and, and respond on a much, much bigger scale. Could there be a political solution to end the violence in Sudan? There has to be a political solution. And... The U.S. and Saudi Arabia actually very rapidly started ceasefire talks in in the Saudi city of Jeddah, but they haven't really got anywhere. And I think the reason why they haven't is because, first of all, there hasn't been any real leverage on the parties. There's no arms embargo. But also there isn't an overall vision about how this problem is going to be solved. There's no package to say if Sudan is put back on the path to democracy, then the kind of overall economic support to stabilize Sudan, to have a credible democracy in which elected leaders can can really chart a future direction of the country. None of this has been put in place. That's Alex Duvall. He is the executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome.
listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9:18, and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, congregants of a church in Louisville react to the decision by the Southern Baptist Convention to expel the church because it has a female pastor. You'll hear that and more coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday. Wherever you are this summer, at the beach or in the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Hurricane Hillary is moving up just west of Mexico's Baja California Peninsula, and while it is weakening, it remains treacherous, likely bringing catastrophic flooding there and to parts of the southwestern U.S. On Maui, hundreds of federal personnel are on the ground searching the burn area in Lahaina. President Biden is due in Hawaii tomorrow with plans to assess wildfire damage and meet with survivors, first responders, and local officials. Russia's first mission to the moon in nearly half a century has ended in failure. The aircraft apparently crashing into the lunar surface. Russia's space agency says it lost connection with the Luna 25 aircraft yesterday after it moved into unpredictable orbit. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Women's World Cup has a new reigning champion. Spain defeated England to claim the title after a tense and dramatic 90 minutes in Sydney. And the game was decided by the slimmest of margins. Final score, one goal to zero. Spain fought hard for this victory, but it's not without controversy. For more on that, we go to James Badcock, a reporter based in Madrid. Hi, James. Hi there. So first of all, my condolences. I know you were rooting for England, but I got to <laughs> ask you, what's the mood like in Madrid? Well, the mood where I am right now is, is pretty good. Uh, I'm just outside the Wizink Center where 6,000 people were screaming in absolute euphoria at, at Spain's win in the final, and a lot of them are hanging around here bent on celebrating this win. But it's kind of interesting. If I walk a couple of blocks, as I did just a minute ago, to the main main drag where there's quite a lot of traffic, 
There's not a lot of beeping. There's not. There's a few cars going past with the flag out and and celebrating. But I think it's nothing like, and it's nothing like what I remember from seeing, for example, when when the men won the World Cup in 2010, when you know everyone knew that was happening and the whole city and the, the whole country, not just Madrid, was just one complete party. Mm. It was a nail biter to the end, though. What what stood out for you in this final? In terms of the game, I think Spain were had so much poise in possession. Uh, England were trying to cat, you know, come back into the game, obviously, and trying to be aggressive. But Spain, I think they cooled it down very well with when they, they kept the ball a lot. This Spain women's team, as has been the case with the men's team and the success they had before, is based very much on possession football. They look a little bit like FC Barcelona, if people uh, know about uh, league football, both the men's and women's teams of Barcelona play this possession football. They keep the ball, they knock it around. And, uh, you know, the best player of the tournament was... Uh, Aitana Bonmati, who is uh, Barcelona's uh, one of Barcelona's top players. So I think that's what stands out for me. It's this style that Spain has, and now the women have done it just in the same way as the men, with possession and with elegance. Uh, there's been so much controversy over the last year surrounding Spain's coaching staff. Several players say the staff is unprofessional, that the team hasn't been prepared for matches. There's been complaints about travel and accommodations. What happens to those complaints now that the team has captured the World Cup trophy? Yeah, it's very interesting because they weren't really resolved. I mean, there were 15 players, as you mentioned, there was a bit of a mutiny. 15 players said they weren't going to go back to the team unless things changed. Things didn't Something's changed a little, apparently, but not much. And only three of them eventually did decide to return. Um, So the power struggle was won very much by the federation and by the existing coach, who will now feel very vindicated. I mean, you can hardly say that it's an unprofessional setup if they've they've won the World Cup. So I think if if everybody's smart here, uh, they'll realize that they can all all win because uh, Spain has won the World Cup. It's the first time the women's football has really got any visibility uh, in Spain. So I think if they're all smart, they'll be leveraging that to grow the women's game. And also the players perhaps will feel they now have more player power and they can start punching uh, uh, the same weight maybe as, as, as Spanish men. That's James Badcock reporting from Madrid. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Southern Baptist Convention voted at its annual meeting in June to uphold the expulsion of two churches that were led by women pastors. One of them is Louisville's Fern Creek Baptist Church, where congregants say the decision by the Umbrella Organization has strengthened their faith in their female leader. Here's Louisville Public Media's Divya Kartakian. On a Sunday morning at Louisville's Fern Creek Baptist Church, Reverend Linda Barnes Popham moves from one corner of the sanctuary to another, playing the piano and delivering the sermon. Our sermon text today comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. One thing that's consumed her over months, the future of her small conservative church where she's been a pastor for 30 years. In February, Fern Creek was disfellowshipped when the Southern Baptist Convention voted to keep women out of leadership positions. Popham's appeal to be reinstated in June was rejected. I'm loyal, so I've been loyal to Southern Baptist, to probably a fault. I just never expected it to go this direction. We kind of felt like we got kicked out of the family. That's Chris Towles. He's a deacon here. 
Before the SBC's decision on Fern Creek, congregants voted on whether they wanted Reverend Popham to continue as pastor. The vote was a unanimous yes. I, I don't think it really mattered as much to us as we thought. We've always felt that Linda had been the best pastor we could possibly have. Churchgoers remain puzzled over the convention addressing the issue of women in leadership something they thought was a thing of the past. Valerie Montgomery moved to Louisville 13 years ago. As an immigrant from Liberia, she wanted to find community and start a family. But she wasn't sure if this was the right place for her. She walked into Fern Creek Baptist Church and was welcomed with open arms. When we came over here, it just felt so warm. The pastor, like, she came out to you and spoke to you after church. When she saw Popham at work, she was amazed at all the roles she played in running the church, from music director to Sunday school teacher. She doesn't take breaks, and she's not the fancy pastor. She doesn't want a big house and the cars and all of that. Before coming to Fern Creek, Mary Sharon Thompson only worshipped under male pastors. Watching Popham take on church duties besides preaching made her realize women were indispensable to the practice of the faith. We wouldn't have enough people to even run this church if the women didn't participate, and they participate heavily in this church. Not just Linda, but all the women in this church. And the work of women in the church is welcomed by the SBC. Just not as pastors, says Denny Burke. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says that churches have to mirror what he calls the leadership economy of a home, where men are the leaders and a woman's role is to affirm their leadership. It would create a a conflict in the church if you know you had husbands called as leaders in the home but at the church they're following their wives as leaders in the church it wouldn't work but it works at fern creek where popham's husband also worships fern creek's decision to stand by reverend popham is a sign of hope for baptist women in ministry the group is not associated with the sbc reverend meredith stone is its executive director she calls fern creek's support for popham a rebellion against an ultra conservative church culture when these communities come together and they provide affirmation for the women who are a part of them they represent who got to truly be Small churches, she says, can make a big difference. Reverend Popham says Vern Creek's disfellowshipping felt unexpected, but it hasn't dissuaded her from finding a new path forward for the church. I don't believe we left Southern Baptist roots, traditions, or teachings. They left, and they think they've won. But in all of this, no one has been a winner here. The Southern Baptist Convention could shed more churches over its policy to bar women in pastoral roles. Before it becomes part of the SBC's constitution, there has to be one more vote taken next year. For NPR News, I'm Divya Kartikeyan in Louisville. Officials in New York City have been trying to shrink their large complex of jails on Rikers Island, but they cannot seem to shrink it fast enough. On a single day earlier this month, there were 29 uses of force, a dozen fights among inmates, and nine assaults on jail employees. Now, a federal judge is considering taking control of the jail complex away from City Hall. Here to explain is Ruvane Blau, a reporter for the nonprofit news website The City and co-author of Rikers and Oral History. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a sense of what life is like inside Rikers, both for correction officers and for the people being held there? 
it's a pretty bleak situation. I mean, it's never been a great place to be. Uh, you know, correction officials point out that, you know, taking away someone's civil liberty is is really, you know, kind of punishment enough. And, you know, the advocates point that out as well. But, you know, on top of it, I mean, everything from the food to medical care to hygiene, it's just, it's just a chaos, a mess. You know, overall, there has been some slight improvements over the last year, but it's been, you know, relatively incremental. And why does it seem to be so violent there? Like, there seems like there's a lot of violence at Rikers. Is that exceptional for a, a prison facility or a jail facility? You know, that it's just kind of baked in, like the violence is baked in. And over the years, especially because literally people will make tools, like weapons, out of the building that's kind of falling apart. And it's like everything, the training, the officers have been, for you know for years, they weren't really trained very much. They were kind of trained on the job. The officers don't get the tools. About 50% of the population has some level of, of mental illness diagnosis, including a 16% with a serious mental illness diagnosis. And the officers are just not trained mental health professionals. And, you know, the number of mental health professionals there is is kind of small. And, you know, you talk to any mental health professional and they'll tell you, you know, putting someone with who's suffering from from some type of illness like that is it's the worst place they can possibly be. So during a court hearing last week, the correction commissioner said that deaths have been dropping seven at the facility so far this year. And that's about a third fewer than at similarly sized jails across the country. You know, you don't want to minimize any death, but is progress being made? Is that progress? So the city's argument is, look, we made some improvements. You know, the last year there was 19 uh, deaths of detainees. It was the highest rate in over 25 years. This year it's been seven so far, which is clearly a decrease. They're saying there's been, you know, somewhat of a reduction in stabbings and slashings. It's about 350. But the federal monitor, the Legal Aid Society, the feds, and all the advocates and multiple elected officials are saying, look, even these slight gradual improvements, it's not enough. Like, it's still worse than it was eight years ago when this entire system was put into a federal monitorship. And it's just not enough. We need to, you need to do more. And the only thing that we see that can work is this receiver. So a federal monitor has been in place for the past eight years. What's the difference between a federal monitor and a receiver? A receiver would have potentially extraordinary powers. They would not be obligated to follow any of the collective bargaining agreements negotiated by the unions. So they could literally just change how staff is controlled, what the shifts are looking like, how they're disciplined. I mean, they would have an incredible, you know, kind of opportunity to just literally almost start from scratch. They could revamp training. You know, they would clearly need to get some level of buy-in from, you know, the labor groups. But ultimately, you know, the power would completely rest on a federal receiver. A monitor, in contrast, is somebody who's overseeing the jail, has oversight over the jail, but is not making any decisions on the ground. The federal monitor now is named Steve Martin. He's been there in place for eight years. He's based in, actually in Texas. And he essentially issues these reports with recommendations and details about what's been going on and how this city has kind of responded to these reports and how the jails are are doing. But he doesn't have the power to literally go in there and actually make them happen himself. The city council and the previous mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, agreed to shut Rikers down by 2027. Why aren't advocates waiting till that happens instead of arguing over a federal receiver? Or is there concern that Rikers isn't going to be shut down anytime soon? So the law actually says that by 2027, a jail cannot operate on Rikers Island. One of the challenges is, is that for that to happen, the, the population has to be decreased. I think it's like 3,500 or something like that. 
Right now, it's it's a little over six thousand, um, and it's actually been going up slightly during the Adams administration. So that's number one. As far as why they're calling for receivership now, they, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. There are again, there are six thousand people that are currently locked up in these facilities, and for them, it's an emergency, and they're at risk of like being stabbed and slashed. Three hundred and fifty they're on pays for this year. I mean, there's basically you know almost one a day at you know in these facilities. I mean, it sounded like the judge in the case, Laura Taylor Swain, was leaning toward uh, appointing a receiver. Do we know when she would make that decision? It's a long process. I mean, so essentially, just opening the window for the sides to make the argument for and against the receiver is a huge deal, which he has agreed to. But it's it's almost kind of like this another court case that plays out. They're, they're going to make the arguments in briefs. It's going to come up again at a hearing. And ultimately, she's going to have to make a decision in that moment. Legal experts who I've talked to who have been involved in other receiverships have all said that, look, this is you know, likely you know, months away, if not you know, even next summer. That's Ruvain Blau, a reporter for the nonprofit news website, The City. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The country of Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula offers a precious export we don't hear much about. It's honey. Yemen produces some of the finest honey in the world. It's an industry that has suffered great losses in the nine-year civil war, but it's still a source of pride. It's still a source of pride for Yemenis. NPR's Fatma Tanis has got a taste. As I was preparing for a reporting trip to Yemen, I spoke to a lot of Yemenis, refugees who fled the war and some experts too. One thing that unexpectedly came up a lot was the honey and how amazing it was. You must try it, they said. There's nothing like it. I was intrigued, but a little skeptical too. It would be hard to find, I was told. The near-decade-long civil war has devastated much of Yemen's natural resources and its production infrastructure. With the help of our driver in Aden, we found a trusted beekeeper named Yusuf Alazazi. He tells us the best and rarest honey comes from bees who feed on cider trees, also known as a lote tree in English. It's an ancient tree, mainly in the mountainous parts of Yemen. Nowadays, he says, many honey shops sell counterfeit cider honey, which is made when bees are fed sugar water. But here in this shop, he has the real stuff hidden in a locked cabinet. Alazazi pulls out jugs filled with golden liquid. It's finally time for us to have a taste. But first, we're given a warning. If you taste it once, you will crave it a thousand times, Alazazi says. My colleague Claire Harbage and I decide to take the risk and try some of the best honey Yemen has to offer. Mm, this, is, this is the best one. Very floral, right? Floral, but like with Very caramelly. There's a rich undertone that's like nutty. Wow. 
flavors hit the tongue in waves one after the other. It's smooth and there's no stinging in your throat from the sweetness. Alazazi has his own take on the taste. It's better than the best chocolate in the world. Nothing compares. But there's so much more to it than its taste. Researchers say sitter honey has antibacterial and other healthy qualities similar to the more accessible manuka honey from New Zealand. Honey is a key ingredient in Yemeni cuisine, and this one in particular used to be abundant and popular around the country. But now, most Yemenis don't have access to this honey. In the past decade, climate change and the war wreaked havoc. Flash floods destroyed many sitter trees. And Alazazi says beehives were damaged in the fighting by airstrikes and missile attacks. Now, the war has slowed down to a stalemate, and Alazazi is hopeful. Peace is coming soon, he says, and with it, Yemen will get its dignity and its honey back. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Aden, Yemen. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The New England Patriots have provided an encouraging update on rookie cornerback Isaiah Bolden. The Pats say Bolden is well enough to travel with the team back to Foxborough today. Bolden was injured in the fourth quarter of last night's preseason game against the Packers and was carted off Lambeau Field and brought to a hospital. The rest of the game was canceled. The Patriots say Bolden has been released from the Aurora Bay Medical Center in Green Bay after undergoing evaluations and being held overnight for observation. In Rhode Island, the state fire marshal's office is investigating the fire that hit an historic inn on Block Island. Rhode Island firefighters from the mainland had to be brought in by ferry to fight the fire at the Harborside Inn early Saturday morning. No injuries were reported. In Worcester this week, the city council is expected to consider two proposals regulating crisis pregnancy centers. Specifically, the measures were proposed more than a year ago by a city councilor and would govern how businesses advertise services. The centers generally promote themselves using language similar to that of abortion clinics and then steer people away from getting abortions. It is 72 degrees in Boston, sunny today, highs in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. 
Hints 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's true. Muons, you know those subatomic particles, also known as fat electrons, wobble faster than we suspected. By we, of course, I mean they, the particle physicists obsessed with things like that. Researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's Fermi National Accelerator Lab in Batavia, Illinois, marked a major achievement earlier this month. They measured the magnetic wobble of a muon with greater precision than ever before, as in there's only a 1 in 3.5 million chance that what they observed was a fluke. And this extra wobble tests the holy grail of particle physics known as the standard model, which is a theory that explains everything we know about subatomic particles, basically the building blocks of the universe and how they interact. It could also mean that there's a new dimension or a fifth force of nature in play. That's big news, or it sounds like big news to me, to tell us more about this amazing subatomic world. We're joined by Esra Barlas, UGL postdoctoral researcher at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a researcher at the Fermi Lab. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aisha. Thanks for having me here. So these muons, they have these tiny magnets and they sort of spin in that magnetic field. Why is this extra wobble in this itty bitty particle important? Because it could tell us new things about the physics we know so far. We have a model that explains every particles and every interactions in the world that we have known so far, this standard model. But we know that there are some missing things, missing pieces in this theory. So that's why you need to look for some specific interactions or properties of the particle in an experiment. And that's what we are doing. I read that it could point to a new force of nature in addition to the gravitational, electromagnetic, strong and weak nuclear forces. So there could be a fifth one or there could be a new dimension. Yeah, there are some popular ideas, some suspects on describing this discrepancy. And one of them, as you say, could be a fifth force of nature that we don't know yet. Other ideas that explains this extra wobble is the presence of a maybe new exotic particle. Maybe, as you say, it's a new dimension. One of the other popular idea is that the theory known as uh, supersymmetry. It basically tells us that every subatomic particle has a partner. There are so many ideas. You said that you have to do experiments to try to figure out what the new dimension or force would be. Do we have a way to look at that? Or is that a challenge to prove what this could be? Yeah, the work is not done yet. We are, okay, drinking our champagnes and celebrating, whoa, (laughs) we have a new physics, but we don't have how to design those new experiments to show or to find out those new unknown facts. So we have a lot of work 
to even design or think about new way of showing the proof of new physics that will complete this standard model at the end. Do you think that when we look at the standard model, now that you have this information that doesn't fit in it, are we going to see the standard model be tweaked? The standard model is something that you guys use to help explain a lot. Will that have some changes? Um, yeah, definitely. There are so many other theories that depends on the results. So they are also eagerly waiting for the final showdown in 2025. Is that the final time to recreate what happened in this experiment to prove that it wasn't a fluke? So we have published almost half of our data. We have another set of data that is going to be published in 2025. So that's the last chunk of data we have at Fermilab. At the same time, the standard model calculations, which are being calculated by the Theory Initiative, it's another group. They will also update their numbers in 2025. So that will be the final showdown. Okay. Okay. We will see if the discrepancy is still there <laughs> or not. So that's why we are really excited to see that how the theory number will also evolve in the next two years. So that will tell us the final word, I suppose. We'll have to have you back on when the final showdown happened in 2025. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I would be happy to. That's Esra Barlas, UGEL postdoctoral researcher at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. You listeners out there know I love a good scare. So for our series asking authors for summer reading recommendations, we had to get some picks to keep us reading through the nights with all the lights on. And Joe Hill has definitely scared me. He's the author of The Black Phone and A Heart-Shaped Box. Many of his books have been adapted for TV and film. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha, thank you so much for having me on. Let's start with the collection. It's called The Wishing Pool and Other Stories. Tell me about this. Well, so The Wishing Pool and Other Stories is by Tanana Reeve Du. She is a novelist and a screenwriter who also happens to teach an acclaimed course in black horror at UCLA. But you don't need to enroll to get schooled. Uh, the Wishing Pool is a masterclass in horror fiction and sci-fi written by one of the very best in the genre. Mm. And so what type of stories are in there? And you don't want to give anything away, but just give us a little teaser. Right. Yeah. I mean, my favorite story is called The Haint in the Window, which is about the last black bookstore in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. Our hero is a bookseller who has begun to realize there's a ghost sharing his nearly empty shop with him. And uh, let me tell you, it goes from heartwarming to terrifying, like a muscle car going from zero to 60 I just loved it. What about another pick of yours, Hidden Pictures? What does that offer us? Ooh, Hidden Pictures is a first novel about a young recovering addict who gets a job as a nanny in an upper middle-class household. 
She finds herself caring for a little boy named Teddy. Teddy is sweet and precocious and loves to draw. And the thing he really loves to draw is the dead woman who he says is standing in the corner of the room right now. That's not good. That's not good, Teddy. No, <laughs> no. Uh, best of all, Teddy's pictures are in the book. Mm. And who wrote this? It's a debut novel by who? Hidden Pictures is by Jason Reculak. It's very funny about parenting in the 21st century, but let's face it, Hidden Pictures is mostly about one thing, which is that little kids can be freaking scary. <laughs> so is there one on your list that might be best for folks who are sort of dipping their toe into scary books? Like, cause not everyone loves to be horrified like me. So like somebody who wants just something scary, but not too scary. There is a book uh, on my list, The Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward. Katrina has won or been nominated for pretty much every major prize in horror fiction in the last five or six years. And she's hit the genre like an absolute freight train, and there's really no wrong place to start with her work. But I think The Last House on Needless Street is the best place to jump in. It's a mind bender in the same class as Gone Girl or The Girl on the Train, but with more of a horror edge. There is a lot packed into this book. There is the unsolved abduction of a small girl and her sister who wants justice. There is an isolated alcoholic who is keeping a teenage girl locked in his house, supposedly for her own good. Some of the story is also told from the viewpoint of his cat, who is wiser and more fearless than any of the human characters. You know, if you want your fiction to rip the rug out from under you, turn you upside down and drop you through a trap door, this is your book. You won't be disappointed. You might be dizzy when it's over, but you won't be disappointed. And I think, you know, if you're more of a thriller person than a gross out and gore person, The Last House on Needless Street will be your safe space. So you can't really talk about scary stories or scary books without talking about haunted houses. And you have something that looks like a haunted house book, Tell Me I'm Worthless. By Alison Rumfit. Tell Me I'm Worthless might be the book I'm most excited to share, but I would caution NPR listeners that this one is not for the faint of heart. Alison comes across like the twisted daughter of Clive Barker and Shirley Jackson. And Tell Me I'm Worthless is an intense read full of shocks and graphic sex and buckets of gore. It's about an evil house that in a sense is a dark, towering monument to fascism and hate. And there's a red room at the center of this place and you do not want to spend time there. Mm, oh, red rooms are really bad. You got to avoid the red room. <laughs> yes, don't go in the red room. It's also a story about a culture war that's been chewing people up in the real world for a couple of years now, the battles around transgender lives. Alison Rumfit is definitely the girl who overstudied for the final. The book is in conversation with just about every great haunted house story written in the last 200 years, from The Haunting of Hill House to Rebecca to Turn of the Screw. It's brilliant. It's actually too brilliant. She's making the rest of us horror guys look bad, but what are you <laughs> going to do? She's upping the game and we all have to live with it. Yeah, so, so now you, everybody has to step the game up now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and some people just love vampires, and you've got a book for those people, though, the book is Rovers? Yeah, Rovers by Richard Lang. And no one who loves horror fiction will be able to put this book down or resist it. Um, Rovers is about two Dust Bowl brothers, Jesse and Edgar, who were killed in the 1930s and returned as vampires. And they've been living on the back roads ever since. If readers feel like they know these two guys, that's maybe because they somewhat resemble the tragic brothers from John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. 
The story takes place in the summer of 1976 on the bicentennial weekend. A decent young woman finds herself in the crosshairs of a gang of motorcycle riding bloodsuckers, and Jesse, either heroically or stupidly, you decide, intervenes to save her. Boom, just like that, the bodies start to pile up. The thing that strikes me about Rovers is how beautifully it's written. Lang's prose sings. He reminds me of writers like Dennis Johnson and Robert Stone. What he's doing writing horror novels, I have no idea. Anyone (laughs) who writes like this ought to be out there writing the kind of fiction that wins National Book Awards. But his professional judgment is our gain. Great vampire novel. Awesome. And so one last pick, an author that people are probably familiar with uh, has a great title, A Head Full of Ghosts. Yeah, Paul Tremblay has written one great horror novel after another, including The Cabin at the End of the World, which was made into a pretty good film uh, this year, Knock at the Cabin. But if you're totally new to his work, I recommend going back to where he kicked things off, A Head Full of Ghosts, which won the Bram Stoker Award in 2015. A Head Full of Ghosts is a genius concept. It takes the situation we know from The Exorcist, a young girl's apparently possessed by Satan, and then imagines it happening to a financially strapped middle-class family today. What would they do? Well, obviously, before they'd call for The Exorcist, they'd try to get their own reality TV show. (laughs) Um, So that's what happens. Marjorie Barrett's possession becomes a season of must-watch TV and a cultural phenomenon till the shocking final episode which years later has left people haunted and full of unanswered questions. Uh, it is a great possession novel, certainly the best one since The Exorcist. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that is high praise. Very high praise. Joe Hill is the author of Horns and co-creator of the Lock and Key series, which I am a big fan of. Thank you so much for these. And yeah, I got a lot of reading ahead. <laughs> Aisha, this was a blast. Thanks so much for talking to me. Stay scared. The legendary band Pink Floyd is famous for the kind of lyrics that get lodged in your brain. After years of study and the help of some new technology, scientists were able to recreate one of those earworms from brainwaves. My name's Bob Knight. I'm a neurologist and I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. Dr. Knight and a team of researchers used brain activity recordings from a previous study where 29 epilepsy patients with implanted electrodes were played this snippet of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Part 1. All was just a brick in the wall. Years later, researchers reconstructed what those patients were hearing just by looking at that brain activity. Not bad, right? But you may be asking, how did they do that? Dr. Knight again. I think a simple way for people to think about it is if you play the piano, if you're a piano player, and you watch somebody play the piano with the sound turned off, and you know what keys they're hitting, you can reconstruct what they're playing. That's what we're doing. The patients in the study were already having their brain activity monitored to help figure out ways to stop their seizures. They took the data from the listening sessions and, using a machine learning program, figured out what sounds those brain waves corresponded to. We basically read the piano keys of the brain. Now, if you're not a Pink Floyd fan, you may be thinking, this doesn't really speak to me. 
but there is a practical application. Right now, speech assisting devices for folks who have trouble speaking can be slow and robotic. But Knight says that figuring out how people listen may help people speak. He says he hopes scientists can extend our computer algorithms to understand what you're imagining to include the more emotional, rhythmic, melodic components of what you want to communicate uh, to your family, to your loved one, to the tax collector, to whoever you want to interact with. It'll take a while before we get there, Knight says. Still, he says researchers like him are willing to build that technology for people brick by brick. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Our theme music is composed by B.J. Lederman. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. And tomorrow morning, start your Monday with Rupa Shinoy here on 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear about Donald Trump's decision to skip the first major Republican debate of the 2024 presidential campaign. Also, a pregnant obstetrician-gynecologist in Texas discusses the state's abortion laws and how they've affected her life as a doctor and a mother. It is 72 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today, and highs reaching the mid-80s. This is WBUR. Earth needs darkness just as much as it needs light. There are some new plants showing their flowers only coming out at night and different bird sounds and different smells. A lot of things going on you don't really notice. Human light pollution is pushing back the dark, which is changing the natural world and could be hurting us, too. That's On Point, Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.